Hi, Journey. How's it going? School's out greetings to all of you. That means it's sort of like officially summer now. Are you pumped to be out of school, students? Woo! Yeah. Uh, we didn't even make it through one entire day of summer before we had a trip to the ER for some stitches on Friday night. Uh, Bailey was innocently sitting, just sitting on the swing. Uh, and Preston, he's seven, uh, rode his bike like, and just smashed like right into Bailey. She's sitting on a swing and Preston just rides his bike right into her and it gashes open her knee. And if you're into blood and guts and those sorts of things, uh, the picture is uh, on my Facebook page or on my Twitter feed if you really care to see the gore. Uh, Bailey's fine, uh, just seven little stitches and she's all good to go. Preston, on the other hand, is not because Bailey is relentlessly letting him have it. Like, what were you doing? You saw the video, and uh, the Global Leadership Summit is just around the corner, just two months away from right now. And I'd invite and encourage you to get yourself signed up ASAP for the very best pricing for uh, that thing. And I promise you, this is kind of like a money-back guarantee of sorts, that it'll be the very best two-day injection of inspiration, challenge, and invitation to new levels of leadership that you have ever been a part of. If you seriously implement the principles, uh, the takeaways from the summit, I promise you that your leadership acumen will uh, increase. And so take this moment to invest in your future, invest in your now, invest in the health of your family and your church and the organization that you work in, uh, and be a part of the Global Leadership Summit right here at the Commons. We're beaming it in via satellite live from the main stage at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. And uh, information in the lobby about how to sign up for that. I'd be absolutely remiss if I didn't tell you that in about three weekends, that's the uh, July 2nd and 3rd weekend, we're thrilled to have our friend Charlie Hall and band back here to lead in all three of our uh, weekend worship experiences. And we're doing something a little, kind of mixing it up a bit. Uh, We're asking him to take our entire 75 minutes and create the sort of uh, unforgettable encounter with our God on that weekend. Now, I know. But some of you are thinking right now, you're doing the math, and you're like, hey, that's the 4th of July weekend, and uh, you will probably, many of you, be tempted like to go out of town uh, or do something. Uh, But wherever you go, just make sure you get yourself back here uh, for one of those worship gatherings. Uh, They will be spectacular. Charlie Hall uh, is always a blessing to be with. Don't miss it. Last weekend, if you were around, you know that we kicked off this new message series that we call, Yes, I Can Hear You Now, and it's a four-week little run on prayer. And it isn't the guilt trip kind of series on prayer, but rather it is an invitation to take our foot out of the accelerator, off of the accelerator of our lives, and increase our conversation with God. Last weekend, we talked about five reasons why we pray. I hope you found them to be challenging. I hope you picked up from that an invitation to make some adjustments to your life and idle down, take your foot off of the accelerator of your life, and spend more time with God in conversation. And today we're going to talk about faith. And today we're going to talk about recovering that which has been stolen from you. Recovering what's been stolen from you. And I want to credit some material that a guy named Jim Simbola wrote that resourced my prep uh, this week. Uh, Audience participation time. You ready for this? This is like a show of hands deal. How many of you have had something stolen from you at some point in your life? Raise your hand. You've had some, wow. I mean, it was amazing amazing the number of people who have had something stolen. It's awful. That's a ton of thieving. All about 80% of hands just went up in here. Now, uh, audience participation continues. Would you just blurt out in sort of a, 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 a fairly loud sort of voice, 
the most valuable thing that's ever been stolen from you. I'm going to count to three, and you're just going to sort of shout it out, and it's going to kind of be this big, muddy, massive sound. But ready? One, two. You're just going to blurt out that which was stolen from you, the most valuable thing. Ready? One, two, three. Did somebody say a car? My goodness, somebody said a car. My gosh, that is horrible. Did you get it back? They burned it. Not only did they steal it, but they also burned it. That, that, that's awful. I mean, that is just awful. And the rest of you, too. Big stuff uh, stolen. One more audience participation thing. On the count of three, you're going to actually shout out the first and last name of the person you think stole your stuff. Okay, ready? One, two, kidding. We're not going to do that one. We're not going to do that. But you have a name, don't you? You, you definitely have a name. Miss, I had my car stolen and burned. All kinds of stuff has been ripped off from us, hasn't it? Now, most of the stuff that was stolen from us, it can be replaced, right? It's a headache, yes. It's a heartache to replace our stuff. But eventually, you move on. You recover. Months and years later, you don't even think about it until some preacher makes you dredge up all those bad, sad memories And then there it is, right again, front and center. Oh yeah, I was trying to forget about that. Now, spiritually speaking, there's a kind of theft that is going on in the lives of Christ's followers that is oh so much more serious. The kind of thing that you can't just go down to the store and replace that which has been stolen. And the theft and the stealing and the ripping off that happens in the lives of God's people, that's Satan's business, isn't it? That's what he's in business for and all about. Now get this though. Satan just doesn't rip off purses and cars and wedding rings and iPods, does he? Uh-uh. Satan's very nature is ripping off stuff that really matters to us. Now we talk about the positive part of this verse that I'm going to dump out on you in just a minute a lot as a church community. We say it a whole lot around here that Jesus came to do what? To give us life, right? You know what verse I'm talking about, John 10, 10. He came to do, give us life, full life, abundant life. But we don't spend very much time on sort of the downer part of that verse, do we? Well, check it out, the whole thing, John 10, 10. The thief's purpose. Who's the thief? Satan. It's exactly right. Satan is the master thief. The thief's purpose is to, watch this, steal and kill and destroy. And this is Jesus talking, so he says, my purpose is to give them, that's you, a rich and satisfying life, a full life, the most full life that you can possibly imagine. So you see, Satan, who is the thief, he isn't at all interested in just stealing your material possessions. He doesn't need, nor does he want all that stuff. Satan does not drive around in cars, in case you're wondering. But what he absolutely does want, though, is your spiritual treasures, He wants your spiritual treasures, the stuff in your life that is valuable to God, stuff in life that matters for all of eternity, not just here and now, but for our eternity, stuff like your purpose for living. Satan wants to steal vacuum right out of your life, your very purpose for living. He loves snatching men and women, people of limitless potential, and relegating them to being just aimless wanderers through this life. No plans or goals or visions or dreams or purpose, just sort of wandering aimlessly. Satan wants to cause formerly vibrant, full of potential people just to lie in bed at night, staring aimlessly at the ceiling, saying, what's the point? Is it just to make money? Is it just to have kids? Why? 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 
We have this fantastic Celebrate Recovery ministry. It meets on Thursday nights over in the base camp wing. And it is all about helping people, just like us, with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. They do a fantastic job. And Celebrate Recovery helps a lot of people with drug and alcohol addictions. But those aren't the only people there. Lots of people are there, part of the Celebrate Recovery community, for lots of other reasons. They want to get well. They want to recover from all kinds of hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And we all have those. Don't deceive yourself. We all have those. Now, people who are part of Celebrate Recovery who have turned to drugs and alcohol as a way of life, they've done that primarily because why? They've lost their hopes and dreams and visions and plans for the very reason they're even alive. And Satan sort of rubs his hands together. He absolutely loves that. Other people turn their focus to career achievement. Know anyone like that? Other people turn their focus to pleasure fulfillment. Other people turn their pursuits to materialism, accruing the very biggest pile of stuff they can possibly accrue. Anything and everything to fill the void that exists in their lives, the void of hopes and dreams and visions and plans for why they're even alive. And here's what they find as they try to fill that void with anything and everything else. They find that nothing else works. They find that nothing else fits. Because see, at the end of the day, we were created to worship God. We were created to enjoy him forever. But the thief even steals that very awareness away from us. Vacuums it right up out of our lives. Jim Cimbala puts it this way. Satan's first move is just petty larceny. Once he manages that, he can move on to actual killing. And from there, he can move on to mass destruction. Steal, kill, destroy. It all starts with stealing. One of the most common thefts you'll notice in the lives of Christ followers is the tragic loss of what the Bible calls our first love for Jesus Christ. And some of you know the very thing that I'm talking about, the first love deal. Remember back in the day when you used to love Jesus so much more than you do on this day? Remember those days? Remember when you loved Jesus so much that you couldn't get enough of God's word? Remember when you loved Jesus so much that you loved God's church enthusiastically and now you just sort of tolerate it? Remember back in the day when you loved Jesus so much that you were looking, like looking, to have spiritual conversations whenever and wherever and with whomever you possibly could. And now you sort of sit back and you look across your life and you go, well, where did all that fire and where did all that enthusiasm and where did all that passion and zeal for God go? Yeah, you go to church, but that's about all. It just isn't even close to the same. Jesus goes hard after this first love issue in our lives. And he's speaking, he does it when he's speaking to this uh, church at a place called Ephesus, Revelation chapter two, verses two to five, if you wanna turn there in your Bible, Revelation two, uh, two to five. By the way, we're working on a Revelation message series for the fall. We're actually gonna kick off the fall around here with a Revelation message series. Uh, a few months ago, I asked you to complete the survey about weekend uh, experience message uh, content, and Revelation was like off the charts, I mean, it, I mean, it was like three to one or something over anything else. And so you spoke and we listened and we're going to plunge headlong into a series around Revelation. We'll actually uh, send a postcard to the whole community and sort of start this community-wide conversation around the book of Revelation and that'll be a kick in the head. Wow. That'll come in the fall. But now Revelation 2, 2 to 5, Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus about their first love issue. 
I know all the things you do, Jesus says. Whoa, let that hit you. I know all the things you do. And he's not there just speaking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to us too. I know all the things you do. There is nothing out of Jesus' sight. He sees it all. He says, I've seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but they're not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. It's it's a great church, right? Jesus is really commending them. Good job. Way to go. Then he sort of turns the page. But I have this complaint against you, church of Ephesus. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Whoa. Where'd your first love go, church? Jesus is saying. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me. Do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. And we'll save the lampstand conversation for the fall. So where did your first love go? Here's where I know it didn't go. It didn't just evaporate one day. It did not just evaporate one day. Satan stole it. He ripped it off. What were once white-hot embers of devotion and love and service and passion, they got stolen away by the thief. He took them. And here's what some people say in response to this first love conversation. You've got to get, Brian, that back in the day when I first met Jesus, I was an impassioned college student. I would, I would do anything for him. Or maybe for you, you were a zealous high schooler when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You would have attacked hell with a squirt gun if somebody asked you to. But since that day, you say, a lot of water's gone over the dam, a lot of water's gone under the bridge. You know, you say with a shoulder shrug, everyone just kind of mellows out with time. And that's what happened to me. But God does not buy that mellow out with time business. 2 Corinthians 3.18 gets right at that. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. By the way, that's anybody who has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The veil of deceit and deception has been removed. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, watch this, makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. God does not ever turn down the intensity of his transformation in our lives the longer we know and follow him. Never. There's no retirement plan spoken of in the Bible. God longs to keep the flame of passion for him burning in our lives just like it used to in the early days of us knowing and following Jesus. But we've got to be honest. And we've got to confess and we've got to come clean with exactly what's going on Lest we are deceived, the master thief has ripped us off. Another category that the thief steals from is the very unique and special calling that God has put on your life and the life of every single Christ follower. The gifts that he's given you to serve him and serve others and to serve the church. Remember back in the day, maybe for you it was years ago, he put a stirring inside of you. He gave you a dream about what he wanted you to do and be and be about. Maybe he wanted you to teach his kids. Maybe he wanted you to sing for him. Maybe he wanted you to pray to him, being one of those people like we talked about last week, kind of a warrior who stands in the gap for other people in need. Maybe he was calling you for crying out loud. He might have been calling you to the mission field, Africa, for crying out loud. Whoa. 
I don't know what it was for you, but you do. You remember. You know full well. And then you know what happened. You got real discouraged, didn't you? Someone all of a sudden let you down. Something at your church went south, and you sort of stuck your toe in the water a time or two. Someone criticized you, and pretty quick, the dream was gone. The calling actually felt false and very, very distant. The inspiration had vanished. You know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. That calling and that passion and that burden didn't just evaporate out of you. It was stolen. And the gifts of the Lord faded out. And the next thing you know, you're just pedal to the metal. 10,000 plus RPMs chasing the stuff of this world as if God's call has never even come near to your life. Speaking of theft, could I talk to you about your marriages for just a moment? The divorce rate inside the church and outside the church, they're almost identical. This is not new news to you. Inside the church and outside the church, the divorce rate are, is almost identical. And any atheist or any agnostic, they see that and you know what they have great cause to say. Why can't this Jesus just keep you two people together? Right? I thought you said Jesus was so wonderful and so powerful and so transformative. So what's your deal? Christian couples splitting up left and right. Why? Is it because they married the wrong people? Is it because they, quote, fell out of love? Is it because they shouldn't have even gotten married in the first place? Is it because their parents were dysfunctional and that's the only role models they know? That's not it. Satan comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Satan fully intends with everything in him to destroy your marriage to your spouse to destroy your relationship with the one you are engaged to. That is the reality of spiritual warfare. And it is only by the power of Christ that you can stay together as God intends you to, one man, one woman, one marriage, for one lifetime. It's only him who can and will give you the power for your marriage to sustain the devil's onslaught, his destructive power let's talk about your kids or maybe for you let's talk about your grandkids yeah maybe at one point in your life you stood up in front of a church community like this and you dedicated them to the lord and you said god this kid is yours he or she is from you a gift from your hands and you you meant it from the depths of your souls but in the years since that day something's happened that child has become an adult and honestly they're not living for god They don't give a rip about Jesus Christ, and there's no way to pretend. There's no use pretending that they are or do or can. And right at the very center, right at the very center of every single one of those things that have been stolen from us by the thief is this ever so subtle theft of the most critical piece of our walk with Jesus. And you know what it is? The theft of our faith in God. The theft of our faith in God. Faith, after all, is the total and complete utter dependence upon God that is supernatural in its unfolding. People of faith, they see with another set of eyes, don't they? They see with spiritual eyes. And they don't just ever get caught up in the circumstances of the moment. Rather, they see God. They see him working with them, walking alongside them as close, as near as their very next breath. And this faith deal is interesting. How many of us pray for clarity? I do it all the time. 
I pray for clarity. God, would you just make that real clear, what I'm supposed to do or what I'm supposed to say? Would you, would you just make it clear? Really, at the end of the day, clarity is not the point. Clarity is never the point. Ruthless faith in God is the point. We want to see the next step. We want to see the next mile for crying out loud. And God goes, uh-uh. That probably isn't my plan. What I really want you to do and what I really want you to be about is ruthless faith in me. Just hold on to me. Just grab my hand and walk with me. And don't worry about the next mile. We're going to worry about right now. And you, you just hold on. You just hold on. And it might be foggy and it might be fuzzy. You probably won't see. But just trust me. That is faith. Hebrews 11.6 says it this way. It is impossible to please God without faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. So you see, nothing else matters, nothing else counts. If our faith is gone, if our faith is missing, if our faith has been stolen, because you see, this faith is the foundation to the whole of the Christian life. It is everything. It's not just about self-effort, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and spending energy. It is about faith. If you want to be a person who touches in to the very heart of God, trust him with your whole life, with everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you want to be. Trust him with everything, and you'll touch into the very heart of God. How many times have you known someone who at one point in their life prayed about absolutely everything? We know these people, don't we? They do crazy things like they lose their cell phone. And the next thing you know, they're like kneeled down praying that God would find their cell phone for them. And what do you know? Next thing, there's the cell phone. But have you ever noticed how some of those same people who used to pray about everything seem to now believe that God can't do anything? They've given up. Their faith has been stolen. It's gone. And sure, those people, they'll give you the same party line about faith. Yeah, I believe in the God who can answer prayer. Because that's the right answer, right? It's like the Sunday school answer. That's what you're supposed to say. But their life and their faith demonstrate that their once vibrant trust, once hungry expectation in God, they're gone. No more are they ever saying, come on, let's tackle this problem or that problem and this need and that need in the name of the Lord starting in prayer on our knees. No. Why not? Because they've been robbed. Their faith has been robbed. Maybe your faith has been robbed. In the book of 1 Samuel, there's this quite bizarre story that portrays this uh, very issue in quite high definition. Here's what you got to know. The story as it's about to unfold, this is one of the lowest ebbs in a man named David's entire life. That same conqueror of a giant named Goliath, he's now running in fear from the king named Saul. He's absolutely freaked out, so freaked out. He actually, David, moves in with the Philistines because he's run out of places to hide. Now, David's not all by himself on this grand adventure. He's got a militia of about 600 men, plus their wives and children. And they're given this city called Ziklag. 
I'm going to pick up the story, 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. About that time, the Philistines mustered their armies for another war against who? With Israel. King Achish told David, you and your men will be expected to join me in battle. This is a Philistine leader, Philistine king. Very well, David agreed. Now you will see for yourself what we can do. Then Achish told David, I will make you my personal bodyguard for life. And that all sounds great, right? But then look at 1 Samuel 29, starting in verse 1. And the entire Philistine army now mobilized at Aphek, and the Israelites camped at the spring in Jezreel. And the Philistine ruler, as the Philistine rulers were leading out the troops in groups of hundreds and thousands, David and his men marched at the rear with King Achish. But the Philistine commanders demanded, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish told them, this is David, the servant of King Saul of Israel. He's been with me for years. I've never found a single fault in him from the day he arrived until today. But the Philistine commanders were angry. Send him back to the town you've given him, they demanded. He cannot go into battle with us. What if he turns against us in battle and becomes our adversary? Is there any better way for him to reconcile himself with his master than by handing our heads over to him? Isn't this the same David about whom the women of Israel sing in their dances? Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. It's not really a wedding dance, is it? Not a very pleasant dance. Saul has killed I won't. I won't. So Achish finally summoned David and said to him, I swear by the Lord you've been a trustworthy ally. I think you should go with me into battle, for I've never found a single flaw in you from the day you arrived until today, but the other Philistine rulers won't hear of it. Please don't upset them, but go back quietly. Just kind of slip out the back door, please, David. What have I done to deserve this treatment, David demanded. What have you ever found in your servant that I can't go and fight the enemies of my lord, the king? But Achish insisted, as far as I'm concerned, you're as perfect as an angel of God. But the Philistine commanders are afraid to have you with them in the battle. Now get up early in the morning and leave with your men as soon as it gets light. So David and his men headed back into the land of the Philistines while the Philistine army went on to Jezreel. So David and his militia, they get sent back home to the city that the king had actually given them. And it's a a journey to get there. It takes them three days. And so we pick up the story, 1 Samuel 30, starting in verse 1. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, bad news. They found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. And they had crushed Ziklag burned it to the ground. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel, Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, quite a name, were among those captured. And David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. David was now in great danger, you might say. And this is dreadful. Every wife, every son, every daughter, every cow, every lamb is gone. They'd been raided, their city burned to the ground. Everything had been stolen. Stolen. And remember, these are husbands and fathers, right? And so they're wrecked and they're heartbroken. They're lost, caught up in the thoughts of their wives and daughters being captured by this roving band of thugs. My lovely wife, they're thinking. My precious daughter, they're thinking. What's happening to them right now? Where are they even? And they imagine the very worst as all of us would do. And they began to cry and weep so hard, they actually ran out of tears. They were that wrecked. Now here's what happens in the midst of the deepest human despair that you can possibly muster. All kinds of human emotions enter the arena, don't they? 
all kinds. Anger and resentment, they boil over. You might have been in a moment like this. Anger and resentment, they boil over. And in a moment like we see here, people just can't deal with the agony of the moment. And so what do they do? They turn. They turn on those in authority, usually, because they can't bear the despair of the moment and they lash out. And David's men are no exception. They do exactly that. And they say, what in the world were we doing out there anyway? Whose stupid idea was it for us to join up with the Philistine army? We should have been home, David. We should have been taking care of our wives and our kids and our families. Let's stone him. This is all his fault. Look what comes very next in the narrative. Verse 6, chapter 30. But David found strength. Where? In the Lord his God. David found strength in the Lord his God. Everything in David's world was collapsing around him. The bottom was completely falling out of his world. And what's David doing? He took his foot off of the accelerator of his life. And he idled down. And he went to a quiet place. And he prayed. And he listened. And he focused his life, not on the circumstances, notice, on God. And here's a lesson from David's life, from his example. It does not matter how low life gets. It does not matter what's unraveling all around you. It does not matter who rejects you, who slanders you, who casts dispersion on your name. God is bigger than all of that. And he is the one, the only one who can buoy your spirits and encourage you at the level of your heart. He is the one who can and will help you get through it. He will sustain you with his strength at the heart level. David stops everything and he regains his spiritual equilibrium. And then we read in 1 Samuel 30, starting in verse 7, then he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring me the ephod. Now, the ephod is this priestly garment, this sort of overrobe deal, and it would have been jeweled, and it's quite extravagant. He says, bring me that thing, because that represents the presence of the Lord to me, and I'm going to seek the face of God in this. Oh, that all of us would do that when we face a crossroads in our lives. Oh, that we would stop, throw the car into park, and say, okay, God, now what? Most of the time, we just gun it and go, don't we? Not David. He stopped and he said, bring me the thing that represents the presence of the Lord to me. And so the priest brings it out, this priestly garment. And then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover Everything that was taken from you. God said, go. God said, go. So David and his 600 men, they set out. And they came to the brook Bezer. 200 of the men, though they're too tired to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with 400 men. Along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field. Brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. They also gave him part of a fig cake. I don't know if they're trying to kill him or what. That sounds gross. A fig cake, two clusters of raisins, for he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and nights. Before long, his strength returned. I'm sure it was the fig cake. To whom do you belong? Where do you come from? David asked him. 
I'm an Egyptian, slave of an Amalekite, he replied. My master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. We were on our way back from raiding the Carathites and the Negev, the territory of Judah, the land of Caleb. We had just burned Ziklag. Will you lead me to this band of raiders, David asked. The young man replied, he's smart. If you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, I will guide you to them. Deal. So he led David to them. And check it out, they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amounts of plunder they had taken from the Philistines in the land of Judah. David and his men rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout that night, the entire next day, until evening. None of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken. He rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He recovered all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock. This plunder belongs to David, they said. And it's right there, that day, in that moment, that David discovers that God is way, way more than just creator God. God isn't just the rock or the strong tower, as David refers to him in a variety of his psalms. But David discovered on this day in a very big way that God is so much more than just protector when you're hiding from the crazed king who's out to kill you. David discovered, a whole bunch of us need to discover the very same thing, that God is the God who recovers stolen property that the thief, the devil, has ripped off from your life. Some of us need to discover it just like David did. What Satan has stolen, God alone is able to recover. And do you notice that every wife, every son, every daughter, they're still alive. Not even a lamb had been killed. And here's the bottom line. David and his men, they had to come to this moment where they actually made a decision to get up and to go after the things that had been stolen from them. And the very same thing has to happen in our lives. There has to come this moment when we say, all right, I've absolutely had it. I'm not just gonna sit here any longer feeling sorry for myself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my daughter, my son, my grandkids, they are going to be reclaimed. In the name of the Lord, I am not going to just let God's call on my life slip away. Satan, you're a thief and you're going to give it back. I'm coming to get it. I'm taking it back. I come against you, thief, in the name of Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Lord, the one who died for me. Remember, this isn't just a battle against flesh and blood, because if it were, it'd be quite easy. This is spiritual warfare. And in our lives, somebody at some point has to step up and fight for our stolen property with weapons of faith and prayer. But it all comes down to a moment, a decision to say, thief, I've had enough of you. I'm with David. I'm going after that which was stolen from me. And Satan does not give a rip about you. He does not at all feel badly when you feel bad. He's not at all sympathetic to any feeling or emotion that you have. And unless we resist him, he'll keep robbing us blind all day, every day. That's what he does. That's who he is. But John 10.10 says, Jesus came to bring life. 
in the face of what the enemy is stealing and killing and destroying, Jesus says, I came to bring life, the most full, rich life you can possibly imagine. Don't give up on your marriage. That's what that means. Do not throw in the towel. Jesus can resuscitate it. Jesus can absolutely bring back the passion for him, the passion for his work, the passion for his church, the passion for his kingdom. He can return it to your soul where it belongs. Your calling from God, it can come back into bloom. God see longs to restore, recover, revive the faith that the thief has stolen from you. And the kind of faith that we're talking about isn't just this mental ascent. We sort of nod our heads toward God and go like, yeah, yeah, I know all that. I've heard it over and over and over again, huh? The faith that God longs to revive in us is the kind of vibrant, burning, childlike trust in the risen Son of God. It is supernatural faith. It is not of this world. The kind of faith that actually changes how you live and how you talk and how you feel and how you conduct business, how you parent your kids, how you love your spouse, how you love your neighbors. It is a top to bottom transformation in the power of Jesus Christ. And the thief wants all of it to be long gone because here's what he knows from Romans 1.17 as the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. It is through faith that a righteous person has life. Satan knows that real, genuine, supernatural faith is our pipeline to God's grace and power. And Satan knows if he can sever your faith connection, he gains the upper hand that fast. That means if Satan can keep your faith from becoming living and vibrant and rich and deep, then he knows that prayer as a force in our lives will absolutely be stomped out. He knows it. And pretty quick, he's just got us going through the outward forms of religion. All the while, we're experiencing absolutely none of God's power, none of God's transformation. We're just playing church, really. We're just going through the motions. We're just pretending that God can actually change and transform and heal and return to us what the enemy's stolen. Maybe as you sit here today, you know that your prayer life is on life support. That's very likely because your faith in God is hanging on by a thread, isn't it? It's just hanging on by a thread. And God says to you today, I long to revive genuine faith in you. You just gotta ask. You just gotta ask. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing. That is hearing the good news about Christ. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. It's like a workout for our souls. God longs, see, to return everything, especially the faith that the enemy has stolen from you. The only question is, do you trust him enough to ask him to return it? Do you trust him enough to have that moment where you say, I've had enough. In the name of Jesus, I'm going after it. I want it back. Please, Jesus, bring it back. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. And I just invite you to slip into a posture of prayer, worship and listening and communion, fellowship, conversation with God.
And I want to encourage you as you pray and listen to God that your conversation with him might center around God actually returning some of those things in your life, all of those things as a matter of fact, that the enemy's stolen from you, especially the faith, especially the faith, because that's where the whole prayer deal rises and falls. You show me a vibrant prayer life in somebody, and I will show you a vibrant faith life in somebody. We ask God to bring it back, bring it back, bring it home, please. Just use this time to press in and ask him. You know what the enemy's stolen from you. Just ask him to bring it back. Maybe you're a person who's here today who has yet to start your faith journey with God. What if this is your day to do just that? What if this is your day? What if today isn't so much about recovering what the enemy's stolen as much as it's about stepping into faith in God for the very first time? Saying yes to him, yes to the gift of Jesus Christ. If that's you, Your first faith step begins with a confession to God. God, I'm absolutely a sinner. That's where it starts. It continues with you saying, God, I recognize that everything in my life has been going away from you. And so Jesus, please, God, please forgive me for my sin. All of it. Jesus, I want you more than I want anything else. Jesus, please forgive me. Jesus, please change me. I get it. I get that you took my place. You shouldered my consequences and my punishment for my sin when you died on the cross. I get what you did for me. And today, I'm embracing you. I'm embracing your gift once and for all. And if that's you, if you're saying yes to Jesus today, yes, I'm repenting, yes, I want to experience the love of God, I'm turning to you, God, please, God, forgive me. Please, God, make me brand new. I'm surrendering my everything to you. I'm not trusting in myself, anything else. It's you, Jesus. If that's your prayer today, would you just real boldly lift your hands and lock eyes with me and just say, that's me, right here, right now, today. You can do that now. Yeah, yeah, way to go, man. Yes. Yes. stand with you and I say yes, absolutely yes. And so God, we say, thank you for these. They're taking steps of faith in you today. Steps of faith. That's what it's all about, God. Steps of faith. Ruthless trust not knowing what tomorrow brings. 
clinging to you with everything that we are, everything that we have today in this moment. And God, together today, we're saying we want our stuff back. The stuff that the enemy's stolen from our souls, we want it back. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, in the power of Jesus Christ, we're getting up and we're going after it. We've had enough. We're not going to sit idly by and let the devil rip us off anymore. We want it back. And oh God, that you would return it because you're the one who's going to do it. We're going to pray and we're going to ask. And God, it's you. So please, show up. Please move. Please return all the stuff of all the people that's been ripped off by the thief. God, would you please put your enemy, Satan, would you please put him in his place? Let him know that you're the king ruling over even him. 